morning, everybody. Um, I want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to meet your teacher in the back. And uh, as they go, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we stand at the end of uh, 2017 and look forward to 2018. And Lord, it's an arbitrary day that we've picked um, in the year to say this is the beginning of our year. Uh, Lord, you gave Israel another month that was the beginning, but uh, the point is uh, we have this starting point and this ending point. And so, Lord, I pray for us in in 2018, uh, Father, that you would show us your will, show us what it is that you long for us to be and to do. Lord, work your will in us. And as we sang about your marvelous grace, we pray that your grace would be working in our lives to shape us into the people that you've called us to. Lord, uh, I pray for now. Um, I pray now for our time as we go back to finish the book of Genesis. Lord, would you show us what it is that um, Moses has to say to us through this writing and what it is that you have to say to us. And Lord, I pray that we would um, be open to what the Spirit is teaching and, and what your word says so that we might follow Christ and be uh, conformed to his image. In his name we pray. Amen. So... We did, um, Luke took us only two years. So everybody remembers Genesis, right? No, no need to go back and refresh that. It's just like it was yesterday. Um, we're back to Genesis, and what I want to do is finish Genesis out. And so it has been two years, joking aside, and it wasn't a very good joke because it was really quiet in here. Or the sugar is kicking in from all the sweets across the hall. I'm not sure which. I'm going to go with the sugar. Don't tell me any different. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to go back and finish the book of Genesis. So I want to recap and, and tell you one more time what my theory is for the book of Genesis. So my theory, and I can't prove this, but this is my take on it, is I think what happened was Moses had led Israel out of Egypt. They're wandering through the desert, and they start complaining, and they think that they had it better in Egypt. And so they start whining about that. And he brings them to Mount Sinai, and God speaks to them from Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain, and he receives the law. And it gets interrupted when God says, you need to go down to the camp. There's something going on. So as he comes back down to the camp, what he finds is they've erected a golden calf, and they're worshiping it. And so he deals with the sin in the camp. He, he takes care of the golden calf. But I think what happened is Moses looks at this event, and he goes, there's a theological problem here. It's not just that they have violated God's rule. He, he just spoke to them from the mountain and said, don't do this very thing that they're doing. It didn't take them 40 days till they figured out how to do that. He's looking at it, he said, there's a theological problem with these folks. They don't know who their God is, and they don't know who they are. So what they think is they look and they said, for 40, 400 years we've been in Egypt. The culture around us has worshipped these particular gods of different things, these, these smaller gods. And so they begin to think that's what a god is like. Is he's a regional god. He's the god of the Nile or a god of the harvest or something. And so Moses is saying, no, that's not who Yahweh is. You need to be reintroduced to your god. And the fact that they whined and wanted to go back to Egypt, they thought they were slaves. That was how they honestly understood who they were, was they thought they were slaves. And so, well, let's go back to Egypt and be slaves again. And Moses is saying, no, you are not slaves. 
So what we've seen as we've been going through the book is he's correcting their view of who God is and their view of who, who he is. So could you put up that next slide? This is how I kind of think the book of Genesis breaks out, if you look at it. It, it divides up really nicely into about 12 chapter chunks. And each, each group of them tells a different story. So the first part, creation, fall, flood, and Babel, I'd, I'd call that like primordial history. And it covers from creation to Abraham, covers it in about 12 chapters. And the narrative pace of the thing, in other words, how fast the story moves compared to how many pages it takes, is pretty rapid. Because we're talking about thousands, perhaps millions of years between creation and Abraham. And he covers it in 12 chapters. Who is the only actor that could be the, the star of, of thousands or millions of years? God. He's the only one who could be the center part of it. So that first part is really focusing on who their God is. Yahweh is not like the God of Egypt. He didn't create a small, he's not the God of Canaan. He is not the God of just the river or just the sunrise or something. This Yahweh, this God that you, you think you worship in this golden calf, he created everything. The heavens, the stars, the sun and the moon, Egypt, Canaan, Mesopotamia, he created it all. He is God above all gods. And so that's what that first section is telling is this story of you worship the biggest God there could ever be. He dwarfs all these other fake gods. So don't worship him in a calf. He's not like the gods of Egypt. So that's that first part. Now the next one focuses in on a man named Abraham. And what we see in God doing in, in this next section, this part about Abraham is God is a covenant making God. He swears himself to Abraham. He tells, there's three times within this story, with this next 12 chapters, there's three times where God says, I'm gonna make this covenant with you. He repeats that repeatedly. So in Abraham, we see God beginning to form a people for himself, but he's a covenant making God. And by covenant, what I mean is an oath bound promise. I swear to you, Abraham, I am gonna do this. Now, does God need to swear to anything? If he says it, pretty much that's reality. He does that for us so that we can see he makes covenant. He, he's going to do these things. So he makes this covenant with Abraham. The, the narrative pace there is only about 100 years. So, gee, we've really hit the, the break, haven't we? We're slowing way down and we're telling the story in a much shorter scope. Uh, there's more detail to it, but it's still 12 chapters over 100 years. There's a bunch we don't know that's going on in there. So then we get to the next section, Isaac and Jacob. Um, Isaac is only in there for a little bit, just a few chapters, and then he's gone. And the rest of it really focuses on Jacob. And what God is saying in this is, not only am I a covenant-making God, but I am able to keep covenant. Even as you die, I'm able to pass it on. And so in the next section, we see Isaac and Jacob and the covenant being passed on to the next generation. Um, with Jacob, though, Jacob moving into the forefront, he is, he, he is what his name is, heel grabber. He, he is the one who is going to do his shenanigans to try to get his way. And what God is showing by picking this particular man, instead of Esau, Esau was the rough and tumble guy, right? He's the outdoorsman. He's got a nice uh, rifle rack in the back of his, his uh, Ford F-250 pickup truck. He's, he's the rough and ready guy. Jacob's the dude hanging out in the, in the tents and cooking. And, and wheeling and dealing and trying to scheme. And God says, yeah, that's who I'm going to preserve my covenant through because I'm bigger than your sins. 
And so we get to the end of that. That's about 105 years. So I'm, I'm guessing at these time frames. Narrative pace is pretty much the same. We're moving now into this last section with Joseph. And what you see is God really slows the pace down. Moses starts writing much more detail, covers a smaller period of time, and, and moves through it at a slower pace. Why does he slow down so much? Why not keep it at the same clip? He could have probably wrapped it up in about two or three chapters. What's his point in telling this part of the story? We've already learned that God is a covenant-keeping God, or co covenant-making God, a covenant-keeping God. So in Joseph, what we're learning is we're learning who Israel is. They have now grown into Jacob's sons, and they're a larger tribe. They're, they're beginning to expand. They're becoming a, a large people group. And so what Moses is telling him with this story is he's saying, you did not go to Egypt as a conquered people. You are not slaves. Watch how you go into Egypt. You come into Egypt as celebrated guests. Your father, Joseph, saved the world because God gave him a vision. And so that's what this last section is about. It's about who you are. So how does this apply to us? Because we're not Jacob's sons. Well, we do need to know who our God is, don't we? We need to see that he is a huge God, the God of everything, that these competing petty gods throughout the world, including power, money, good looks, whatever it is, can't compete with this God. He is sovereign over them all. We need to understand even today that he is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. The New Testament repeatedly points back to Abraham and says, because God was sovereign and, and, uh, and faithful to Abraham, that's how we stand today. It's important that we understand that he's a covenant-keeping God. And finally, we have to understand who we are. We are his covenant people. He has sworn himself to us. We are not slaves. And so that's where we're going to go now as we begin to look into Joseph's story, as we begin to take a, um, a peek at what Joseph is up to. So the section begins with uh, the story of Jacob. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. Verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. That is the end of Jacob's story. Now, Jacob doesn't disappear. He's not dead. But he moves off the center of the stage, and Joseph moves into the center of the stage. So now... Jacob is, is assumed a supporting role, if you will. Um, that word for generations there, do you remember we talked about that before? Toledot. It means generations of. And, and there are 10 Toledots throughout the book of Genesis that kind of structure the story. Um, I, I read through two or three um, commentaries, and they all say it's, uh, Toledot says, these are the generations, in other words, what I'm about to tell you. And I totally disagree with that. <laughs> I think it's exact opposite. I think it's, this is summing up. So all we've heard before this was, these are the generations of Jacob. And now we're done with Jacob, and we move into the next section. And the reason I say that is because the first Toledot is in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And it's, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Well, what was chapter 1 all about? God created. He said, let there be, and there was. And so he gets to that and he wraps that up. He says, okay, I'm done talking about creation. Now we're going to talk about next thing. The next Toledot, these are the generations of Adam. Well, we're done with Adam at that point. So that's why I think that this Toledot now is saying we're done with Jacob. We've told his story. Um, if you're paying close attention, I skip chapter 36. Is that okay? It's all one big gene genealogy. If you want, we can go back and do it. But I guarantee we'll all be asleep. So let me summarize real quick what chapter 36 is about. 36 is actually the second to the last Toledot. 
these are the generations of Esau. Who's Esau? Esau is Jacob's brother. So what we're saying is we're wrapping up that story of Isaac's sons. Here's what happened to Esau. You've, I've told you the story of Jacob. Now, what happens in that, that whole section, I mean, he didn't say that in one verse. He said it in the whole chapter, and there's a lot of words there. Uh, what he does is he goes through Esau's genealogy, and he recounts, this is who came from Esau. Esau is Edom. Edom is a, is a nation uh, to the east of uh, Israel, east of Canaan, where they're going to be going in. Edom is the word for red. So the guy with the pickup truck and the, and the gun rack, his name's Red. We come by it honestly, folks. <laughs> what happens is Moses tells them this story because as they go into Canaan, he wants them to see, you don't get to slaughter everybody in sight. We're not going to just toast everyone we see. Edom's your brother. He's related to you. And so we would expect Edom to behave to us as our brother. And so he gives them their whole genealogy. He needs them to understand this nation that will be to your east. You need to understand who they are. They're our relatives. And so we will be trading with them. They are not Jacob. They are not Israel. They are not the covenant people. But they're related to us. And so that's what he does in chapter 36. Now, chapter 37, he wraps up, like I said, the story of Jacob. These are the generations of Jacob. And then he starts with the star of the show, Joseph, first word out of his mouth. So let's take a look at this next portion. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. A lot of things summarized there. Jacob married, he wanted to marry Rachel, but he's the wheeler dealer, he's the scammer, he got out scammed. Laban swapped wives for him. So he wakes up in the morning, he looks over and goes, you're not Rachel, you're Leah, I wanted Rachel. So he winds up marrying two wives, Leah and Rachel, and as he's getting ready to leave, he, they're given their maidservants, uh, Bilhah and Zilpah. And so they come with him. Now, what happens in Jacob's story is they have baby wars. Leah starts giving birth. Rachel gets upset because she can't give birth. So she gives him a handmaiden. And then Leah stops having babies. So she gives him a handmaiden. And they, they have this baby fight. And what you get out of that is the 12 tribes of Israel, all the sons. So when it says that he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, it's not just those two because Leah had some kids as well. What, he's, what Moses is saying is he's trying to remind us of the family history there. He's drawing all these folks together. So Joseph is 17 years old. He is the second youngest. He's the oldest child that Rachel had. Now, Rachel was the one that, that Jacob just loved. He, he was the one that he wanted, or she is the one he wanted to marry. She got all the attention. Poor Leah has said, well, she's got weak eyes. And, you know, she's kind of the homely one. Um, and God said, well, because she's not loved, I'm going to bless the daylights out of her. How about that? So he takes care of her. But there's a special place in his heart for Rachel and her children. And so when Joseph gets to be old enough, that's who he loves. That's who he looks to. So um, he's out in the flock, or he's out in the pasture tending with his, his brothers. And what it says is, is Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, the bad report, um, there's some mixed understandings of this. I'm not sure what you may have heard about it before. 
Um, some people say that he brought a lie, that that's what bad report means is he lied to his dad about his brothers. Um, when you look at the words, the, the Hebrew words, it, bad means bad. It just means evil. And report is seldom used in the Old Testament. It's not a, a very popular word. Most of the time it's used, it's a bad thing, like a bad reputation or something, but not always. So we're not really helped by looking at the words there and say, is, it, is he lying or not? There's a perfectly great way to say lying in Hebrew, and that's not how it's said. So we have to look a little broader. He brought a bad report about his brothers. What we are about to learn about his brothers will substantiate the fact that he could have well have been telling the truth. What will happen in the rest of this chapter will show you exactly how bad these men are. And then we're getting to chapter 38. And it gets really ugly. Judah and Tamar. He didn't need to make anything up. When he brings a report to his father, it was probably a truthful report saying, Dad, do you know what they're up to? And so what happens is he's, he's a tattletale, right? He narked on his brothers. And they get mad at him. So he's the favorite son, and he just narked on his brothers. So now what happens in the next verse is, now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Notice he switched to calling him from Jacob to Israel. He's going to do that. Moses is going to do that through the rest of the book. And there's really no clear logic as to why he uses one over the other, though it appears he tends to use Israel when he's talking about the nation or the, or the tribes, but not always. Like here, it, when he says Israel, he's talking about Jacob. Um, Israel, remember, when, when Jacob was traveling, he had a dream, or, and he woke up, and there's an there angel, and he wrestles with this angel all night. And so that was when he got renamed Israel, wrestles with God. And so that's, that's the name that will go back and forth. What that turns into after Jacob's death is that will be the name of the nation. They will be called Israel. So he loves Joseph more than all of his sons because he was a son of his old age. Rachel couldn't have children for a long time. And then the Lord remembered her and opened her womb. So he's an older man. He has this child from his beloved wife. So, of course, Joseph's the spoiled brat in the family. He's the one everybody loves. And so he made him a robe of many colors, it says. Um, this is really famous. They've written a musical about it. Um, and it's not clear what he's talking about again. Uh, it says robe of many colors. The way the Greek version of the Old Testament translated it was a long-sleeved robe. And that's probably because the word behind that many colors, um, the root of it could be either colors, lots of colors, or it could be the palm of the hand or the palm of the foot. So the idea is maybe it was a long-sleeved one that came all the way down and went all the way to the ground. Um, or maybe it was many colors. If it was a long-sleeved one, it was highly ornamented. It, that's a similar word that's used for the priest's robes in, in different uh, cultures around the time. And they were heavily ornamented, golden things hanging off of them, beautiful. If it's many colors, do you know how hard it is to color cloth? There's a reason when you see these, um, these movies of the olden times, they're all wearing gray, because that's the natural color of stuff. To dye it a different color was really tough. Purple is really a hard color to make naturally. We got it down now because we can just throw chemicals together. But back then, it was really difficult to make. That's why Lydia was said to be a merchant in purple, 
literally what she did is she found a way and she found a source to dye things purple. And so she made a lot of money doing that. To dye these, this, this coat many different colors was expensive. It cost a lot. So whatever the coat was, now you can just forget about that. It doesn't matter what it was. What it means is it was an extremely pricey thing for Jacob to give his son. It was a cloak that he put on and it broadcast every day, Daddy loves me. He could have had a t-shirt, Dad's favorite, and it would accomplish the same thing. That, that's what that coat of many colors or that long sleeve coat did, was it said, this is the one I like. So, and it's going to come up again in the next sermon, what that thing does. But the context of this is Israel loved Jacob, or Israel loved Joseph. I'm probably going to say Jacob a lot. I'm sorry. Um, Israel loved Joseph and gave him this coat, this, this badge that he wore. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of the brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. The fact that his brothers hated him is going to come up three times in this. It's repeated. And when something's repeated, not only is it important, it's also intensified. They can't stand him. And it says that they could not speak a peaceful word to him. They couldn't speak to him civilly. Every time they saw him, the only thing that came out of their mouth was venom. I hate your guts, you little brat. Probably more colorful language than that, but they really hate him. And so this is the tension within the family. This is, this is the struggle that's going on in this family, is the one child is favored and everybody else can't stand him. So that kind of sets up the scenario for what comes next. What comes next is a couple of dreams. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. See? Not only did they hate him and couldn't speak civilly, now they really hate him. He said to them, hear the dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more, we hear it again, for his dream and for his words. What do you think of Joseph at this point? I've heard some complaints that say, did he really have to go tell his brothers this? Hey, dudes, guess what? I had a dream. You're going to love this. This is really cool. You're all going to bow down to me. Well, there's more to it than that. I don't think he was being a brat. Um, if it was just, you know, I had a dream, and it was only his dream, who cares? Great, you had a dream. I had a dream the other night that I was being chased by cannibals. Yeah, big deal. Is anybody upset about that? Nobody cares. Why are they so upset about this dream? What we're going to find out is this dream, these two dreams that he has, are prophetic. They're telling him something. And, and we're going to hear about it later on. So these dreams, did he have to interpret them for him? Did he say, you know what that means? You guys get to bow down to me. Aren't you happy? He didn't say that. All he said was, here's the dream. They interpreted it for themselves. The meaning was fairly clear. And they get upset about it. The reason he told them is because I think he recognized this is a prophetic dream. And do, should prophets keep their, their prophecies to themselves? It's God's word to him. He spoke to him in a dream. He needs to tell this. So I don't think Joseph is at fault here. Look at the brother's response. You think I'm bowing down to you, you little snot? I'm not, I'm, it's never going to happen. Forget it. But he didn't say you're going to bow down to me. He just said I had a dream. 
Now, what's interesting is when we look at this dream and then we look at what comes through the rest of Joseph's story, this dream is not so much about you're going to bow down to me. Because what are they doing? They're in the field, they're harvesting the, the wheat, and they're binding it into sheaves. What this dream is telling them is Joseph's food source will be superior to his brother's food source. Because that's what this is. This is food that they're gathering in the field. They're gathering wheat. So it's not just you're going to bow down to me. It's I'm going to provide for you. And, and it's going to be amazing. So they get mad at him again. They hate him even more. And then he dreamed another dream. Oh, boy, it's getting worse. Maybe at this point he should just shut up. But he can't. Listen to the next dream. He had another dream, and he told his brothers and his father. And he said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept it the saying in mind. So now this one is even clearer. This is not about the food source. Now this is the stars of heaven are going to bow down to me. And Jacob interprets it rightly. The sun and the moon are the heads of this family. Is your mother and I, are, are we going to come and bow down to you as well? And the brothers, they're going to bow down to you? That's, that's what this dream you had is? Now notice he doesn't rebuke him for it. He doesn't rebuke him for having the dream. He, can you help but have a dream? It, when it comes, it just comes. What are you doing at the time? You're asleep. You're incapacitated. The dream comes. So when, when Jacob rebukes him, he doesn't, like the, he doesn't like where the thing is going. And the word for rebuke there is really strong. It's a word used when God rebukes a nation. It's a thunderous rebuke. So Jacob is really offended at this. But in the end, he keeps the saying in mind. Like, that means something. So again, I don't, think, I don't think Joseph is necessarily being a spoiled brat and saying, guess what, you're going to bow down. Nah, 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 nah. He's simply telling him, this is, the, this is the vision I've had. And they interpret it, and they get it correct. Now we see something bigger. Not only is Joseph going to provide for them, he's going to rule over them. And they're going to come and they're going to bow to him. So his brothers hate his guts. His father still loves him. And his father keeps this saying in mind. When you look at the story of Joseph, there are actually three sets of two dreams that structure his story. There's these two dreams. Then um, later when he's in prison, the baker and the cupbearer who are in prison will have dreams. There's two more dreams. And then there's finally he goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has had two dreams. So it kind of moves the story along. Those, those dreams kind of structure what the story is about. And it's a pretty common theme through this. So take a look at what happens with the dreams. Though. With this dream, what happens? These, this, this pair of dreams. He dreams them and his brothers hate him. And it just keeps ratcheting up their hatred for him. When he gets to prison, the baker and the cupbearer have dreams. And what happens there? Well, one of them gets executed, so that's a bad thing. But the other one forgets about him for two years. So it goes from hatred to indifference. And what happens when he gets to Pharaoh, and, and he, Pharaoh has the two dreams, and J, Joseph interprets them. Pharaoh loves him, elevates him, promotes him. So he goes from hatred to indifference to love. 
that's kind of the, the theme, the message that moves through this story. So there you go. There, there's the, the dream sequence in this first section. What are we supposed to do with that? How, how does that apply to us? Um, remember, when we were going through the Gospels, the Gospels are kind of narrative, but also some, some teaching. We're listening to Jesus teach. This is just narrative. It's just reporting these are the things that happened, and it has a point. So how do you, how do you handle narrative when you're preaching through it, when you're reading through it, um, rather than going, well, that's an interesting story? What you look for is what are the themes, what's happening through this? So when we ask, what are we supposed to do with this? Um, there's, there's a couple of things that I think we should do. First of all, when we look at this, we need to look to Joseph's faith. Now, I got to make sure that I don't preach all of Joseph's story this morning. Otherwise, it's going to get really repetitive. So I'm going to really try to focus on just what we've seen this morning, just to focus there. But in Hebrews chapter 11, you remember Hebrews chapter 11, the, the, the faith of the saints. The author of Hebrews goes through all of these Old Testament saints and holds them up and says, this person believed and this person believed and this person believed. We get Joseph's faith paraded before us. He's held up as an example of faith. So I think the New Testament way to read this story is to look at Joseph and say, what was his faith? How, how was his faith helpful in this? Well, Joseph has had these two dreams, and I don't believe he forgets about them. I think he saw them as prophetic. He saw them as God's word to him, as a promise that God made. There will come a time, although he's 17 years old now and hated by his brothers, there will be a time when he's going to be elevated. He's going to provide for his family, and he's going to rule. And so that's the promise that he's been given. And if he's hopefully not a real snot about it, this is what's going to come about. This, this is something that he can hold on to. This is the faith that he has, as he has God's word promised to him. And what we find out is, yeah, these are what sustains him. Remember what comes next for him? He doesn't go from the, the dream to the throne. There's a lot of things that happen in between. He's going to get thrown in a pit. He's going to be sold as a slave. He's going to ascend to the, the second in charge of a house of a powerful man and then be thrown in the pit again. He's going to jail. And he'll be in jail for much longer than he should be. And then he'll be elevated. So his path to the fulfillment of this promise is not a nice, clean, straight line, is it? Through hardship and difficulty and hard times and, and bad things are going to happen. But he holds on to this. In chapter 42, when his brothers come to him begging for food, they don't recognize him because he looks like an Egyptian now. He shaved all his hair. He's wearing Egyptian clothes. He's speaking Egyptian. So they don't recognize him, but he recognizes his brothers. And in chapter 42, verse 9, it says, And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. I don't think they were completely out of his mind until this point, and then all of a sudden they popped into his brain. He went, oh, yeah, that's what this is. I think what's going on is if I had a dream like that, that kind of powerful dream, I remember him. And so he's hanging on through all of these ups and downs, these good times and these bad. He's hanging on to the promise of God. There will come a time when I'll provide for my family. There will come a time when I will rule over my family. And so I'm in jail. But I haven't given up hope because God said he's going to do this thing. I've been arrested. But I'm not going to give up hope because God said he's going to do this thing. My brothers threw me in a pit and sold me to Ishmaelites. But I'm not going to give up hope because God has made this promise. So if we look to, to, Jake, or to uh, Joseph's faith, 
what we can say is he got a promise from God. He, hang, he hung on to it, and it helped him through the good times and the bad. The way we can do that, the way we can hang on to that, is we can remember God's promises as well. And they will sustain you through the good times and the bad. So the ones that I thought of is my brain immediately went to Romans chapter 8. I'm glad we didn't read that this morning. We read Romans 3. But I immediately thought of Romans chapter 8. It starts with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How much condemnation do you bear if you're in Christ? None. What does the world tell you? You Christians are intolerant. You Christians are closed-minded. You, religion has been the bane of society since the beginning of man. You are horrible people. And what you think of is your brain goes, there is now no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ. That's how you fight the opposition. That's how you fight the accusations. That's how you bear up when, when the world seems to be coming down on Christians. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. I watched a video this morning, just about made me cry. It was from Egyptian TV, and an interviewer is sitting with a family and, and asks what's going on, and the mother just starts going on about how I forgive you. I, I know what you've done to my husband. My husband's in a much better place, and I forgive you. I just want you to know I hold nothing against you. Terrorists had killed her husband, and she's on national TV forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And so the interviewer gets up and hugs her. And, and what you see on the other side of the screen is the news presenter, and he's sitting there slack-jawed through the whole thing. And he went completely off script, and he said, Egyptian Christians are made of steel. I could not forgive the way they're forgiving. If that had happened to me, I would have been angry. How can Egyptian Christians be made of steel? Because there is therefore now no condemnation. The worst you can do is kill me. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. How can I lose? So this is the promise that we hang on to. But Paul keeps going in chapter 8. In verse 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Do you hear what he said? There is no condemnation. The sufferings of the present time. Anybody who tells you the Christian life will be a, a, a bed of roses from here to the grave is lying. The Christian life will be difficult. Paul says, I consider the sufferings now to be insignificant compared to the glory that's to come. That's why that mother could say, you've killed my husband, but he's in a better place. The sufferings now are incomparable to the glory that is to come. So this is another promise that you can hang on to. And this is one that I think is more important in the good times because I think we're, our faith is more threatened in the good times than it is in the bad. In the good times when, when you're comfortable and you've got everything you want and you think, hey, you know, I can take my ease. I've got the 401k is set up. I'm, I've got a good job, happy in life. It's easy at that time to begin to forget God because you don't need him so much or at least you don't think you do. So that's why I think that verse is more important. I consider the sufferings of the present age. What's going on in the present age doesn't compare to the glory that is to come. The comfort, the ease, the money, the fame doesn't compare with the glory that is to come. It, can't, it just is not going to measure up. There's another promise that you need to hang on to. In the bad times, the sufferings, 
and in the good times, the glory to come. This is how we imitate Joseph's faith, is we have these promises and we hold on to them. And then finally, he ends the chapter with, or gets close to the end of the chapter, he says in verses 29 and 30, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So where in that chain is it broken? Where can you fall out of that? You can't. If he's called you, he's going to conform you to the image of his son. He's going to justify you. You will be glorified. That's the promise. So when the good times come, when the bad times come, these are the kind of promises that we need to latch on to. These are the, we didn't get dreams. We got something better than dreams. We got God's inscripturated word. His promise written down for you. So hold on to that. That's how you imitate Joseph's faith in this. So that's what I think, I think the first thing that we should do with this kind of narrative is look to see what did the saints do then and how can we do that now? What's, laud, what's laudatory about what they did and what should we do? How does it work in, in the new covenant? But there's more to this. And this is going to come up repeatedly throughout Joseph's life. So bear with me. There is a parallel between Joseph and Jesus. There's something going on here. So Jesus, likewise, did Jesus born in a manger and ascend to a throne? Well, yes, but what happened in the meantime? Herod tried to kill him. The Pharisees and, and Pontius Pilate succeeded. They killed him. So there's this parallel as well with Jesus. Consider this. He, Jesus was loved by his father. Joseph was loved above his brothers by his father. Jesus was loved by his father. John chapter 10, verse 17 Jesus says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So the father loves, loved the son. I think Jesus is actually beginning to hint at this. You remember when we went through Luke, we looked at some of his, we looked at his parables and one of his parables in Luke chapter 19 um, was the parable of the man who goes off to receive his kingdom and he leaves minas, not miners, but minas with his servants and he expects them to do something good with it. And, and Luke has this almost throwaway statement in the middle of it. As the man is, is going off to receive his kingship, his kingdom, from whoever he's going to get it from, in uh, 19 verse 14, it says, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. It's almost a throwaway that disappears because the, really the focus of the thing is, What did you do with your minas? The man who had 10 invested him, here's 10 more. Good for you. The man who had five invested him, here's five more. Good for you. The other man wrapped him up and hid him under his couch. And he condemns him. So that's where the focus is. But these servants who say, we don't want this man to reign over us, they come in at the end. Because after he has now returned and received his kingship, he looks out and he says, bring those enemies of mine and cut them up. Judgment falls on them. So it seems like a throwaway. It seems out of place, but doesn't this sound like what's going on with Joseph? We don't want him to rule over us. He's the, he, that's not okay with us. He's, he can't be our king. We've decided what our king is going to be. And isn't that the pattern throughout Israel's history? We don't want that. We, Moses, we don't want you to rule over us. 
Miriam and Aaron say, well, we can do it. The sons of Korath say, hey, you're no better than we are. And then you get to the judges, and well, they are no better than we are. And then they demand a king, and they wind up with Saul, who was, eh. And when, when David comes, there's still struggle under David. And then the kingdom's divided. I mean, it's just a repeated thing about, we don't want him to rule over us. So that's that, that parable that Jesus tells kind of points to that fact that this is, this is what's happening with him, is he's come to his own. John 1.11 says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Joseph has been prophesied, you, he will rule over you, and his brothers go, we don't want him to rule over us. He's no better than we are. Who does he think he is? But Jesus is going to be the first among many brethren. That's the promise that we have as well. Is, is when he has gone through these things, he will rule over us as his brothers. We are adopted into his family. It's a tremendous promise that we've been gained. And that's what Joseph is picturing for us. We'll see it as we go through more. We'll, we'll fill that out some more. But the beginning of it just begins to feel like Jesus' story as well. So to wrap it up, Hebrews 11 was a story about all these great people of faith in the Old Covenant. And then Hebrews 12, he begins to pick that up and apply. And listen to how Hebrews 12 begins. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of those saints from the Old Covenant, since we're surrounded by that cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sing which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So when we say, look to Joseph as an example, Joseph is a picture. He's a, he's a, he's a crayon outline, a crude crayon outline. What we're told to do is see that in Joseph, but look to Jesus. He's the fullness of it. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is going before us. He's the one to whom we have to conform. That's the good news, is Jesus has blazed this trail before us. So when good times are, are around, when hard times come, when life is easy, when life's difficult, when you're crying for joy, or crying for grief, know that Jesus has done this before you. Your brother Joseph has gone before you. And let that be the hope that you hang on to. There is now no condemnation. The, the sufferings of this age are not worthy. And whom he called, he justified, he glorified. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray for all of us, especially myself, that we would be, believe and trust the promises that you have made. We don't always get to see the fulfillment. We don't always get to see everything come to a rosy completion. That man in Egypt who was killed didn't get to see his children grow in the faith. But Lord, his death was glorious. You used it to announce on television to Muslim viewers the glory of the Christian faith. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith in the hard times and in the good, in the rich and the poor, in the health and the sickness. Lord, I pray that we would walk as Joseph with integrity, with purpose, with our eyes on the promise that you've made to us. 
Lord, that we remember Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, so that we would run the race without encumbrance and receive the crown of glory at the end. Amen.